Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, coming to you from 8,000 feet. All week, I've been at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. The festival is an annual gathering of some of the most high-profile thought leaders on issues ranging from geopolitics to technology to the arts and education. I like it because it gives me the opportunity to talk to these folks when they aren't rushed and stressed by their normal day-to-day lives and schedules. This year, however, the festival happened to fall on the same week as the first two Democratic debates. So much for all that respite. Senator Harris. Hey guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. So while I did get the chance for a number of one-on-one interviews, a couple of which you'll hear later in the show, I also knew that I had to cover the big political news of the week. So both nights, I was joined by a group of Ideas Festival panelists to help me break down the performance in front of a live studio audience. It was like watching a debate with 300 of your closest friends. Okay, we're almost ready to go. Yay! Thank you guys for coming. This is going to be a lot of fun. We are, what is it, two minutes to go? I want to just quickly, before this all starts, let you know who is going to be on the panel tonight. Rich Lowry, who's the editor-in-chief of National Review. Art Cullen, who is the editor-in-chief of the Storm Lake Times. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, one of the founders of Echelon Insights. And Jonathan Capehart, who is an editorial writer for The Washington Post. Let's let NBC take it away. I just want to say there's three women up here that have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose. On January 20th, 2021, we'll say adios to Donald Trump. If you need a license to drive a car, you should need a license to buy and own a firearm. There are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible, we just can't do it. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Post-debate, I put the first question to Art Cullen, editor of the Storm Lake Times in Northwest Iowa. I'm wondering what you think of how your neighbors and folks in your state looked at this debate. Actually, my brother John, who's the publisher of our newspaper, just texted me. And what did he he say? uh, He thought that Warren and O'Rourke did well. So everybody was laughing at O'Rourke in the audience. He was home and alone watching and had a completely different impression. Yep, yep. And both of them in early polling, well, in early polling, Beto O'Rourke in Iowa was pretty high. He has since right. declined, and Elizabeth Warren has been rising in and polling And you can in tell the that, uh, he's, uh, that Beto's betting the farm on Iowa also. You notice he was talking about ag resilience and farmers leading the way and all that stuff. And uh, I thought... Warren, again, Iowa is a populist state. We elected Tom Harkin and Chuck Grassley forever. One is a conservative populist, one's a liberal populist. And uh, Warren was speaking, again, populist language, very appealing in Iowa. She has the best ground game. And finally, uh, Amy Klobuchar was also reeking Iowa uh, tonight on TV with the the foam and the beer routine. Often she uses the phrase, I can see Iowa from my front porch. And uh, 
And uh, so she's got that wry humor that really works well for her, and she's got a pretty extensive network of friends in Iowa, and she scored a lot of points tonight with them, I think. And uh, especially when, in her clothes when she started talking about governing with integrity. That will be a huge hit in Iowa. Also, one other thing, yeah. Warren complicated herself in Iowa by really going all in on Medicare for all. Again, Des Moines is, and Hartford, Connecticut are the two health insurance capitals of the country. And uh, uh, people are, they, they may favor the public option, but I think they're skeptical of Medicare for all, but I might be wrong. Jonathan, I want to go to you because I know on your fancy iPad you've been sort of keeping a little chart of what you were thinking. So isn't that amazing? Show that to the audience. That Jonathan Capehart, everybody. Technical wizard, on-air analyst. He can do it all. Because um, I can't remember if I don't write it down. No, I'm with you. So who helped themselves, who hurt themselves, and who really didn't move anywhere? In my little chart here, I, I say the folks who did really well, I thought, Castro, Booker, Warren, Klobuchar, who I knew would do well. He did predict that I, this I morning. Today, keep your eyes out on Klobes. Um, and Bill de Blasio, who I, I mean, I've written a piece just degrading his candidacy. <laughs> but, on that, but on that debate stage, I thought he did very well for someone. And the other thing is, I knew folks on the outskirts of the debate stage were going to make plays to get attention. And I thought Bill de Blasio did a very good job of taking advantage of the opportunities. And poor John Delaney. Every time he came on the screen, you all laughed. <laughs> but the same, thing about, the same thing about Beto. Embarrassing moments, Delaney, when he looked out there and said, you know, my family was separated from whatever when they came over, and it was like this lost moment. Beto O'Rourke, Tim Ryan had many embarrassing moments. And I thought Bill de Blasio's answer, where he invoked his, you know, he's raising a black son and, it, and the relationship with the police, it was an important point to make, but it seemed a little gratuitous in the moment. And I, I, the last point I'll make- Especially with Cory Booker standing up there. But. Right, and the last thing I will say, to your point, Art, about um, Klobes reeking Iowa, she's like speaking directly to Iowa. A friend of mine texted me and said, you know, Booker needs to talk to white people because every answer was in my community, black and brown communities, huh. and which I was already thinking he's talking to South Carolina. Huh. That's all I've got. Okay, those are excellent. Kristen? Yeah, I, I was fascinated as well that, you know, Joe Biden is, is the front runner, maybe a weak front runner, but nonetheless, he's ahead in the polls and not by a small margin. Uh, and that no one seemed to kind of try to take on his lane in a serious way, with maybe the exception of, of Delaney and Ryan, but I don't think they succeeded very much. Um, that there, it really does seem to still be a lot of kind of chasing Bernie Sanders' slice of the vote. And I think it, it, it's important to remember that the Democratic primary electorate is not Twitter. It, is, it tends to be actually older, uh, not as old as the Republican <laughs> primary electorate, but sort of, I think it's a majority are over the age of 55. Uh, a significant portion of them consider themselves moderate. Uh, and so to the extent that there is a large slice of the Democratic Party that right now maybe only thinks Biden is their person, I don't think anybody on that stage tonight really, really made changed. a play for that group. At that point in the night, we opened it up to our audience. Where is the electorate on the importance of climate change? 
think the, the Democratic, Democratic polling, it's really high. It's very oh, high among Democrats. Beating Trump, electorate. electability, and Medicare for all, and climate change yeah. are way up there, right? Absolutely. So as the electorate as a whole, no. But among the Democratic electorate, absolutely. It probably skews a little bit younger in terms of the priority, uh, where they put that, which makes some sense. But it is um, absolutely issue one or two. But also keep in mind, that's why Inslee's in the race. That's right. He's, he is the climate change candidate. And he wouldn't do that if it weren't a high priority within the party. Yeah. Yep, right here. Uh, this might be for Rich, but I'm thinking from the Never Trump cohort, is that a significant enough group or is that a media creation, the Joe Scarboroughs and whatnot, uh, to actually swing this? And would anybody on the stage tonight really resonate with them in a way that they could compete? So pure kind of never Trump is down to like five people. You know, it's, it's Bill Crystal and a couple others. But the broader phenomenon, and you can speak to this better than I can, is suburbanites, especially suburban women who are naturally Republicans, have been Republicans a long time, who just cannot abide the way this guy conducts himself in the office. And they are very much up for grabs. The Democrats uh, made inroads among them in uh, 2018. And people, it's kind of, people say it's a cliche now, there are no swing voters. These are swing voters. And uh, if Trump's going to win, he has to, at the end, the way he did in 2016, can, um, make the other candidate radioactive, same time he's radioactive and convince them to choose him over the other radioactive candidate, which is what happened with Hillary Clinton. So he's, he's got a, he's going to rely on a very negative race and turn down the other person again and needs to win back enough of those suburban ones. You know, they, they don't identify themselves as never Trump, but that effect is a Republican constituency that is alienated for Trump that's going to have a big role in deciding what happens in 2020. I want to make sure we get our last questioner in the back here before we have to go. I was um, disappointed about the answers about assault rifle uh, weapons, and I was wondering why um, they didn't take on the NRA and come up with more concrete answers to that. The fact that you have Democrats, including Democrats, one from Minnesota, run from Ohio, agreeing with much more restrictive, and in some cases, pretty dramatic restrictions on gun ownership is actually a pretty big step for a Democratic Party. Booker did make a concrete proposal, though, I thought. His, basically, everyone has to register in order to be able, you know, you need a gun register license. So he was very, of all of them, I felt like he had the most specific concrete answer. I don't know if you saw Yeah, I, again, I, I said I, I thought Warren kind of whiffed on that one because I thought it, it was sort of a layup that you could say, you know, th there are many things that you find polls show vast majorities of Democratic voters like that vast majorities of, of sort of moderate voters did not used to like but are warming to uh, that it's m a much safer issue for Democrats within a primary to be bolder on. And I think I was a little surprised that, that someone like Warren, that that was what I felt like was sort of her first answer that didn't sound bold. Art, did you want to say something about that? Yeah, that... Uh Rural Democrats are not at all settled on assault weapons, and uh, they view them as a tool. If you've got a coyote, you're going to use an AK-47. AR, AR-15? Or AR-15, thank you, thank you. I, I'm, not an, I'm not a gun owner, I don't know. <laughs> but all, a lot of my uh, 
conservative Democratic friends in rural areas uh, uh, talk about, you know, banning cop killer bullets, uh, making Kevlar vests illegal, all the kind of uh, background checks, licenses. But when you start talking about the model of a gun with, uh, with these guys, uh, they just turn it off immediately. You can't talk about the make of the gun, but you can talk about any other gun restriction. That's really interesting. All right. Hey, I want to thank all of you for hanging around for this entire process. Please thank this panel, Kristen, Jonathan, Rich, Art. Tomorrow night, we do this all again. Rinse, repeat. <laughs>I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. I do not believe you are a racist, but I also believe, and it's personal, and it, I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. One of the most memorable moments from night two right there, when Senator Kamala Harris attacked Joe Biden for his relationship with segregationist senators and his position on school busing decades earlier. The tone was more confrontational on night two of the Democratic debates, where the lineup included a handful of the candidates that are performing best in the polls. And with a fresh batch of candidates, I was joined by a fresh group of thinkers from across the political spectrum. We have Senator Heidi Heitkamp over here, uh, former senator from North Dakota. John Dickerson, correspondent with 60 Minutes at CBS News. You may have heard of CBS. Charlie Sykes, the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark. Fatima Goss-Graves, who's the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. And Mona Sharon, who's the senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. At the end of the evening, I wanted to know who made the best case for deserving a shot at the nomination. Charlie Sykes had the first say. I do think that Biden helped himself. He had high energy. He showed he was willing to uh, stand toe-to-toe with, with his critics. I think that Mayor Pete also benefited himself. He is such an impressive, interesting politician. I think that a lot of buzz is going to be was this Kamala Harris's breakout moment. I see that Politico's already put out an alert, you know, Kamala Harris breaks out. I guess I would dissent from that in two ways. Yes, she got a lot of attention. Number one, though, she doubled down on the abolition of private health insurance, which I'm not sure is an asset. Number two, she was the one who basically tried to take down Joe Biden. I'm not sure she succeeded. But did you have any differences of opinion with Charlie on who you saw really helping themselves or maybe not? Uh, I basically agree with what, I almost always agree with what Charlie says. But, uh, you know, let, let's talk for just a second, if you don't mind, about the unfairness of this debate. There were no rules. They, they didn't say, look, each person is going to get 30 seconds to answer. If you are directly attacked, you get 15 seconds for a quick response. No, it was whoever would push themselves forward, was, was given an opportunity to speak. Even then, the moderators would frantically refuse to let them speak, only then to give in. It looked completely chaotic. John, as somebody who's actually moderated a debate, if you want to weigh in on how they did and well, what it's like to be up 
Well, first of all, there but for the grace of God. I mean, it's very, very, very hard. Because what you, what you only see a little bit of there is when a candidate's giving an answer, if you're a moderator, every other candidate is trying to get your attention because they want to jump in. And so you end up doing this weird thing where you either can't look at any of them, which makes it look like you're in a hostage video, or... <laughs> Or you have to kind of nod and acknowledge to all of them, which looks like you've taken some bad medicine or something. So I think what they should do with these debates is you get a budget as a candidate to, to butt in on, and your, your butt-in budget is a minute and a half. If you go over that, then that detracts from the minutes you get to answer straight-up questions. So you can spend your time jumping in and all that, but then you're just not going to be heard from again. It's super hard to do this, to keep them all under control. I'm not a big fan of the hand-raising questions. I don't think they, they do much uh, for us. And I'm not sure you need so many moderators. These debates tend to be about promoting the networks. They're announced. You expect, after those Voice of God announcements, you expect everybody to come out in, in boxing shorts. Senator Heidkamp, I want you to, to weigh in on those questions, but I also wanted to read the one tweet that the president tweeted during this debate. All Democrats just raised their hands for giving millions of illegal aliens unlimited health care. How about taking care of American citizens first? That's the end of this race. Just how difficult is this issue going to be for whoever the nominee is going up in, especially in these swing states? I cannot emphasize to you enough the two issues that were on this platform today that moderates in places where you might be able to swing some votes, it's abortion and immigration. And what they heard was a far left agenda. And if I'm the Republican Party and I'm watching this and I know we think they're all really, really smart and engaged and beautiful people, I know most of these people up there, but if I'm the Republican, I think I won this debate. Because I know that things were done today that will enable me to make the argument tomorrow. That I can, in fact, paint you as the extremists and me as the moderate. Trump knows that this has got to be an election about a choice. That's why he's saying this. It cannot be a referendum on his deplorable behavior. It can't be a referendum on his deplorable agenda. His failure to do what he promised to do, it's got to be a choice. That's how he won the last time. That's how he plans on winning this time. With that said, there needs to be a moderate message up there. Now, the good news about this debate is it was much more moderate. There were much more moderation in opinions than there were last night. But I will tell you that there is, it just as he's, he's hitting while, while, you know, he's striking while the iron is hot, right? He's saying, look here, they're for giving away free stuff, and they are for letting anyone come into this country who is going to affect your security and your stability of this country. And oh, by the way, this Medicare for all, it won't work, and you don't want it. And so he sees in this the opportunity to be the outsider. I mean, think about that. Now, now he's run the government by the time the election comes around for almost four years, and he's going to run as the outsider. And, and I think when you look on that stage, the only person that, that Trump is afraid of is Joe Biden. Fatima, what do you think about that, about Biden being the only one that Trump would be... He, I, it may be that he thinks that. I think there are more people who he should be afraid of. Okay. I think if you look tonight at Kamala Harris, including in the no rules format, that she was able to take advantage of the no rules, create calm 
on the stage and, and get her message out there. I keep thinking around immigration that the Democrats need to keep focus on babies in cages, on children, on concrete floors, that that's what this president has done and that his agenda left uh, so many vulnerable families. They need to keep laser focused on that. A marathon two nights, two hours, and it's just the first debate. Thanks to all the panelists who joined us over two nights, now we look ahead to the next one in July. But coming up, you'll hear some of the other conversations I had at the Aspen Ideas Festival this week. Stick around on Politics with Amy Walter. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanzina Vega, and every day The Takeaway breaks through the noise to bring you context behind the stories shaping our lives. The economy right now has very little to do with Donald Trump. We have to act locally for the changes that we want to see. Women will die. It's not a joke. It's not just news. This is my life. Join the conversation here on The Takeaway from WNYC and PRI Public Radio International. Hi, everyone. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, and we're back with more. At the debates this week, candidates honed in on a familiar refrain that for many people, the American dream is no longer within reach. How come for the last 45 years, wages have been stagnant? for the middle class. For all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you. But are we really on the same page about what that means? It's not so much that the American dream defined as earning more than your parents did is out of reach. That's Dr. Raj Chetty, a professor of economics at Harvard University. He told me that only about 50% of people born in the 1980s are likely to experience this definition of the American dream. It's a big decrease from the 1940s or 50s where most people could expect to do better than their parents. But Dr. Chetty isn't buying this idea that our economy is inherently more challenging today than it was back then. The American economy is growing at just a slightly slower rate now than it was in the 50s and 60s. So what that means is that's still growing a lot. America is still a rapidly growing economy, yet still only 50 percent of us are doing better than our parents did. How does that happen? Most of the growth is going to people, a very small fraction of people, in the very top 1% or top 0.1% of the income distribution. And in that sense, you know, you can debate how you should define the American dream. But clearly, if this was a reasonable definition in the past, it's still one that we can aspire to today. And this is the other issue that's fascinating. Your work is also looking at the distribution of where people live. You also found that inequality is distributed unequally. Yeah, so a striking pattern in the data is you can have a city like Charlotte, which has had some of the highest rates of job and wage growth in the past 20 years. Yet for the kids who are growing up in Charlotte, their prospects don't look very good. In fact, they have the lowest rates of upward mobility of any place in the U.S. Now, why is that? It shows you that there's a disconnect potentially 
just because you have a lot of jobs in a given place doesn't necessarily mean that the people in that place are going to acquire the skills needed to get those jobs starting very early in childhood. It doesn't follow automatically. We need to be deliberate about building that skill base in our communities. And what are some of the ways in which those communities can build up? First of all, I would say there's no one single answer. The things that are affecting some communities might be different from the things that are affecting other communities. So in one place, it could be that the schools are not providing adequate support for children, that you need to recruit stronger teachers, retain talent in the school system. In other places, it could be about uh, segregation and a lack of social connectedness. So what we're seeking to do in our work is measure what the issues are in each place so we can target solutions appropriately. What I found fascinating in your research is that when you move from one of these areas where you could see stagnation to one of growth, the younger you are when you move matters. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I think of it as sort of like a dosage effect. The more you get of a place that's high mobility, the better you do. So if you get there when you're 15 instead of 20, that benefits you some. If you get there when you're 10 instead of you're 15, you get an additional five years of benefits. And if you get there very early in childhood, you do even much better. It's not just about what's going on at the end of high school or job readiness. Apparently, it's something that's happening starting pretty much at birth that's different across these communities, which makes you think about early childhood programs, preschool. I think actually one of the keys that we don't spend that much time talking about in the policy circles is connections and exposure. You know, who are your mentors? Who do you aspire to be like? Who do you know who's become a scientist or a journalist or started an important business? And, you know, whose shoes do you see yourself in? It also suggests that government programs like housing projects are probably the worst in terms of increasing outcomes for low-income folks or people who are in poverty. Should we just get rid of public housing? So I think there are, it's, it's a complex issue. So we spend about $45 billion a year in the U.S. on affordable housing. We spend quite a bit of money on affordable housing. Unfortunately, it's not designed in a way that's effective in tackling the intergenerational persistence of poverty and may, in fact, exacerbate it. The most striking example being building large public housing projects that concentrate poverty and kind of prevent people from accessing opportunity. So the way I think about it is affordable housing itself is a very important goal. We need to provide housing for uh, citizens in its own right. That's something we should be thinking about. But thinking about it as a ladder to opportunity and figuring out ways we change our program so that we give developers maybe a bigger credit to build affordable housing in high opportunity places. So we're working against segregation, building fewer public housing projects and deconcentrating poverty. That's the direction I think we should be going in. And how much of the challenge to doing things like that are the people who live in the neighborhoods that aren't where there's concentrated poverty? Not in my backyard. Right. I think that's a legitimate concern. The way I look at it as a scientist, as an economist, is let's measure the importance of that empirically. Is it true that if you live in a more mixed income community as a higher income person, that your children will see worse outcomes. And what we see in the data is that more mixed-income neighborhoods have significantly better outcomes for low-income kids, but no worse outcomes for high-income kids, maybe even slightly better. There's some nice evidence from colleagues of mine at Harvard showing that when you grow up in a more mixed-income environment, when you interact with people from different peer groups as a kid, you have very different attitude later in life. You're more likely to be charitable, socially giving, um, you know, doing perhaps uh, a more diverse set of things yourself. And where's the political will on this in your experience? 
So what I've been heartened by is inequalities can be a divisive topic, but when you think about it from the lens of opportunity, everyone should have a shot at the American dream. That is actually very unifying. Find people on the right, people on the left, people, you know, no matter what their political views are, believe that that is a core aspect of America and want to fight to figure out how we retain that in America. And so if that's support for policies that reduce segregation, policies that improve schools, you have to finance those policies in some ways. So you tax very successful businesses or uh, high-income families. I think framed from that perspective that we're not taxing you simply because we think inequality is bad, but because there's a purpose here to support opportunity, I think there can be political will for And that there's a benefit to you personally to have less inequality. Absolutely, because I think we all benefit when we live in a society that has more opportunity. Just if you think about it, even in crude terms of dollars, if we have fewer people getting incarcerated, fewer people who are you know, dependent on the government for benefits because they aren't able to get a good job, indirectly, everybody else is going to benefit from that, even just in a dollars and cents perspective, independent of we want to live in a society that's just and uh, where everyone's making progress. And yet, even when we try to take the politics out of inequality, some of your research noted that the real disparities between white and black men, whose opportunities looked very different mm -hmm. and their outcomes looked very different by the time they were in their mid-30s. Race continues to be a dividing factor. There's no way around that. Um, and I think figuring out how you help African-Americans, and in particular black men, where we see much lower rates of upward mobility and much higher rates of downward mobility, which is, I think, the most disturbing part of this. So it's kind of like being on a treadmill for African-American men across generations. You climb up and then there's still these structural forces that are pushing you back down. Now, interestingly, if you look at black versus white women, you don't see such a stark difference in rates of mobility. So what that shows you is it's actually not purely about race. It's race interacted with gender. And you start to think about, think about things like criminal justice. And why do we have such a large fraction of African-American men growing up in certain neighborhoods who are incarcerated? And how can we help those men achieve better outcomes? How can we make changes in our systems that don't lead to you know, high rates of mass incarceration and so forth? Uh, you, you have so many initiatives, so many ideas for how to, if not fix, but at least mitigate mm -hmm. some of the challenges that we have. And yet, we know that follow-through is sometimes very challenging, especially politically. All it takes is one administration to mm -hmm. the next. Mm -hmm. It takes one city council leader mm -hmm. who is ousted, and a new one comes mm -hmm. in and no longer follows through on that. So, so how do we keep this consistent? So I think the answer is, first of all, everyone needs to follow through. It's not just about federal policymakers. It's not even just about local policymakers. Mayors, housing authorities, school district superintendents, and so forth have a big, big role to play. But the community, nonprofits, lots of folks who are trying to do good work in this area, being able to measure progress is extremely important for all of these groups. So you don't just look at these data at one point in time. You look at them year after year and hold people accountable. So if you see that a place is very low mobility or you see that a certain college does not offer high rates of access to low-income students, you don't just put that out at one point in time. You then ask, okay, two years down the road, three years down the road, have you actually made progress? And if you have, great, let's celebrate that and figure out how other people can do the same. And if you haven't, let's ask why you didn't follow through on it. Raj Chetty, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me. Thank you, my pleasure.
Here at the Aspen Ideas Festival, there's been a lot of talk about the changing relationship between politics and technology. As more and more of our lives are connected to the digital world, there's increased scrutiny around the companies that make this connection possible. The thing about the internet is it's so easy to access, it's uh, so seemingly convenient, and it feels so universal and neutral, but it's hardly that. That's Ramesh Srinivasan, professor and director of the Digital Cultures Lab at UCLA. And like a lot of experts who've been critical of big tech, he's concerned that the millions of internet users around the world are in danger of being manipulated by seemingly benign platforms ones that do not have their best interests at heart. They go there to experience the wider world, including the political world, and that's the place where news, in theory, gets aggregated. The issue, though, is there's something in the middle, right? There's a little ghost or a little gremlin in between the news producers like yourself, right? And all of us as users and voters and citizens. And what that is that lies in the middle are choices that the technology itself makes computationally rather than an editor or a journalist like yourselves. In his upcoming book, Beyond the Valley, Ramesh tries to understand the built-in biases to the very infrastructure of the internet. Whenever we create technology of any form, we illustrate how we view the world. You know, I'm a man of color, I'm an academic. I know when I write software, I write it based on who I am, and I am biased. That doesn't mean I'm sociopathic, <laughs> but it does mean that I write, I order the world based on how I know the world. Increasingly, the technologies we connect to are AI technologies, meaning that they are so-called intelligent technologies that make decisions for us, right? Um, but how the technologies are designed themselves are going to reflect those biases. So if we feed technologies data to learn from the world, we know our world is not equal. We know our world is not neutral. So right? how does that not happen if, the, if there are so many of those voices now getting in to the yeah. bloodstream of the Internet? Because the, the, we train the AI systems based on our own biases. And that means we see examples like Google, unfortunately, had an image recognition system that couldn't tell the difference between black people and gorillas. And the way it dealt with that was it took gorillas off its image search, at least temporarily. So the problem is, is false positives become the norm, and the violence and the pain of the false positive is, is particularly problematic. Consider, for example, Amazon's facial recognition system being sold to ICE. Um, ICE agents wearing body cameras connecting to cloud-based ICE software, rounding up people um, in East LA, very close to where I live, and the false positives are showing some of these people through the body cameras to be undocumented immigrants. And they're getting deported as a result of that. So we got to like, get this right from the beginning. Well, does that mean we have to teach AI to unlearn bad stuff? Or it, they have to, it has to learn new stuff? How does that? Yeah. I mean, step one is, is really ensuring that we have the right regulatory and legislative apparatuses to make sure that we, don't, we are not socially engineering the world in the image of the 0. 0.0001%. <laughs> um, step two is really changing our blueprint of design, you know, and right now, this, this is why I'm optimistic, the spotlight's on these tech companies, right? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's about to show up, and he's gonna have to do some explaining. <laughs> Google's been up is, is on the hill getting grilled. I mean, yeah. they're yeah. yeah, and we see examples like the GDPR um, in the general uh, data protection regulations in in Europe, um, which are like reining a lot of these things in. So 
There's a lot of opportunities. What I think has to happen is um, we need a totally different design process. We need greater transparency and accountability. Um, people need to know when they're interacting with data systems. And I think on the economic and macroeconomic level, people really, uh, we need to ensure that these digital engines don't pull further wealth away from working people. I also want to look at, um, let's say we come back two years from now, will Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera, have been regulated? Or will it be one of those things where Congress, the political structure kind of can't come together and ultimately they'll do a little bit of their own self-policing, but they will not get the kind of regulation or oversight that other big industries you know, again, I think it's an all hands on deck. If we can't get regulation and and maybe even breaking up, if if that's what really people want to push for, then we can get other sorts of things. And some of the things we could get is uh, data privacy laws. We can get uh, data disclosure laws. We can get even ideas on paying people for their data. There's a lot of different kinds of alternatives outside of the mere regulatory side of things. Because I do I do agree with what you might be implying in this question, which is. It's not clear. Uh, we saw that when <laughs> Mark Mark Zuckerberg was, you know, answering the questions to the senders. You know, I mean, I think Orrin Hatch asked Mark Zuckerberg, like, "What's your business model if your services are free?" And to that, Mark Zuckerberg responded, "Sir, we sell ads." <laughs> um, that's okay, though. I I do see these things shifting. I I don't think it's as simple as simply saying break up big tech. You know, I know that's uh, Senator Warren's current policy proposal. I think that's the start of what we might want to do. But I don't think it's simply about classic monopolistic activity. What we're talking about here is potential behavioral modification. And we're actually talking about the engines that could actually create greater and greater inequality and really threaten democracy. And I do want to make this point. We see a number of populist candidates who are able to message in ways that work really well with the divide and conquer nature of algorithmic systems who are now coming to power, not just around fake news and misinformation, but around using inflammatory content. Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, we saw examples of this. Rodrigo Duterte in in, um, the Philippines. In Myanmar, we saw some really horrible stuff happen with the Rohingya and the Myanmar government. Uh, Similar issues happening in other parts of the world as well. So it's just important right now to realize that people cannot simply turn to these platforms thinking that they're the same as public journalism. Uh, They're not. But at the same time, pressure has to be put on those tech platforms to be socially and politically responsible. And that's my my goal. Ramesh Srinivasan, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. I really appreciate your work. Thank you for having me. Ramesh Srinivasan is a professor and director of the Digital Cultures Lab at UCLA. And he's the author of the upcoming book, Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow. Welcome back. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. This week, we're marking 50 years since the Stonewall Uprising in New York City sparked the modern movement for LGBTQ civil rights. There's been a lot of change and progress through the course of the last 50 years. You can hear the cheer in the crowd. A very dramatic moment here, a 5-4 decision. This is a a total victory for the advocates of same-sex marriage. We are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many... We are one. Of course, not every advancement comes without repercussions, and not every moment has been a happy one. 
21-year-old Matthew Shepard was found beaten and unconscious last week near the University of Wyoming. Please be advised. The United States government will not accept or allow transgender people from serving in any capacity in the U.S. military. In my life, though, the major moments in the LGBTQ movement are experienced within and through the lens of politics, even the cultural ones. The L Word, a series about a group of lesbians living in Los Angeles. It premiered on January 18th, 2004. So it's January. It's an even-numbered year in a presidential election cycle. That means I, of course, was in New Hampshire. And I have this really vivid memory of sitting in my hotel room in Manchester on a Saturday night before the Democratic primary, watching a preview of that program. And the reason I remember it is because I remember thinking how radical it was to be so proudly and openly showcasing the everyday lives of lesbians. It was especially radical coming at a time when the Democratic candidates who were running for president were tiptoeing awkwardly around the question of gay marriage. So around that time, I was on CBS's Face the Nation, where I interviewed Senator John Kerry, who would go on to win his party's nomination. His home state of Massachusetts was on the forefront of marriage equality, and I asked him about that, noting that by the time the convention was held that summer in Boston, his home state may be giving marriage licenses to gay couples. Carrie's answer, well, it was this. I've said very clearly, I am not, I personally do not support gay marriage. I support rights. He then went on to say he supported things like visitation rights for gay couples in hospitals. Fifteen years later, a lot has changed. Now there are at least 10 openly LGBTQ people serving in Congress. Two states have openly LGBTQ governors, Oregon and Colorado. A gay man is running for president of the United States. And guess what? The L word is coming back. I sat down with Eileen Shaken, the co-creator and executive producer of The L Word, to talk about the show's impact. I hate being grandiose about this. I don't think The L Word on its own changed any opinions and perceptions, but I think that The L Word was part of a cultural change. And I do think that The L Word helped to move forward that conversation in the way that entertainment does, in the way that... Television makes people comfortable with ideas and people and cultures that they haven't known before. So, you know, I, I mean, I've heard a lot, and it's certainly been really gratifying, about how the L Word helped a lot of people to come out, to talk about their lives, to talk about their concerns with family and with friends. And I think that in that sense, the L Word played a role in the change that you're referring to. Was that your intent as you were launching this in 2004, or were you pleasantly surprised at what came from the conversations and the, and the dialogues around the show? It wasn't my intent. My intent was to tell a story. And at the time, I didn't have either the confidence or the experience to know that telling a story could play such a large role in actually changing lives or or moving the culture. I just thought, this is a really good story to tell. I want to write about gay experience. I want to write about my experience. I've written many, many things that weren't explicitly about my experience, and now I want to write about it. And that's all I set out to do. It became apparent pretty quickly once the show debuted that it was going to play a role 
that extended beyond just entertaining. Are you planning to like, address this moment that we're in right now in that way? Well, firstly, let me say that, and I think you know this, I'm not actually writing or running this new version. Correct. An, Thank you. I, I just don't want to take credit for things that yes. I'm not doing. But I'm, okay. you know, I, I have a great deal to say and a lot of interaction with the young woman that we chose to take on that role. And I know that she's planning to address all of that. And I think that you can't tell these stories without encompassing those issues. I mean, these are the issues of our lives. And since the L word Gen Q, as it's now called, is going to tell stories about our culture, our community. It's going to touch on everything that we're going through. I would also love for you to reflect on the fact, and and this is part of the point of our show as well, that we're now at the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and um, what that milestone means for you. Well, it means so much for all of us as a community. What it means for me, I mean, in terms of, you know, the timing of my life, it slightly preceded my gay identity, gay awareness. I wasn't, you know, around in New York at the time that it was happening, but I've been aware since I was much, much younger of the importance of Stonewall. It's become much more... Um, a, a cultural, not just a gay cultural, but a national cultural touchstone. We look at it as you know, the uprising that marked the beginning of our movement. And the importance of it to me is that we've got so many battles yet to fight. And we're, you know, we've, we've gained a lot of ground, even since the L word went off the air. But we also are, as you suggested earlier, at a real tipping point where we're still under attack and fighting for for our rights and fighting for equality on so many fronts. So are you optimistic at this time? Like, what's your glass half full, half empty gauge telling you? Yes, ultimately, I'm optimistic. I think that it's inevitable. And I think that our our humanity will prevail. But, um, you know, it's been pretty discouraging. Some of the things that we thought that we had already put behind us are clearly not behind us. And we're going to have to fight those fights again, and we'll just keep fighting those fights until they're won. Is there something in particular you think that is a fight that you thought was over that is now back? Under this administration, we're seeing our rights chipped away at, and it's the panoply of progressive issues, but certainly trans rights, military service, those issues have actually been kind of hammered back in explicit ways. And we can feel it coming at us in other ways. That's always the question, too, is it feels like we're at this moment right now where, or let's just say, post uh, the L word, it felt like there was a trajectory that had been pretty steep, you know, going from, we're not going to talk about gay marriage to everybody thinks it's okay. And now we've, we've passed the point of no return on acceptance of gay marriages, of gay families. Do you think that we have passed the point of no return on there, at least in terms of just opinion? No. Okay. No, we haven't passed the point of no return. And I think that as we're learning, rights that we've won can be taken away. And there are those that would like to take them away. And I don't think that we should be complacent about that. 
Eileen Chaikin, this was great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to talk to you as well. That's all for us today. Thanks to the Aspen Ideas Festival for hosting us all this week and for helping us out in the studio. I share more of my thoughts on the debates in my weekly column. You can find it at cookpolitical.com. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. And of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.